to get started, uh, just a little bit of scheduling we have to do, and I'm sorry for this, this is the peril of having class through summer. Um, so we are off next week due to Vacation Bible School, no class. We'll be on the following week, and then we'll be off again. Um, and then we will be on and hopefully on for some time. So there's just a little back and forth here for the next few weeks, and I'll keep you apprised as we go, but just so you know, no class next week. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer, and then we'll get into our study. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Taking a look today at Has American Christianity Failed? by Brian Wolfmuller. And we introduced this text last week. If you'll turn with me to page 9, we'll get ourselves back into the groove. We'll get the context of where we are and where we're going. Here he uh, mentions four key components of American Christianity as he sees it, and he gives his definition, which again I think is pretty important that we just take a look at his definition and see what his point is. Um, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. Okay. Um, last week we looked at revivalism in depth. Here he's got it summarized. Revivalism teaches that the Christian life begins with a personal decision to accept Christ, so that, that element of the individual and the human will being at the center of Christianity. And then pietism, what we're going to see as we go into pietism, which he defines as uh, pietism teaches that the Christian life is chiefly marked by a growth in good works. Now, notice that word chiefly. Whereas, whereas revivalism has kind of a white and black either or element to it, Pietism is going to be a bit more gray. It's going to be a bit more emphasis or emphasis on the wrong syllable. That's the critique that's going on with pietism. Not that, not that good works are bad. <laughs> We're not going to say that. Um, but that if Christianity becomes primarily or chiefly about good works to the exclusion of Christ and his good works for us, then we've lost something. Okay, we'll take a closer look at pietism, as Pastor Wolfmuller defines it, and then we'll go on to see mysticism and enthusiasm. Um, those of you who were in our service earlier this morning, you heard, let me see if I can get it right, small called articles, section 3, article 8, it's on, uh, it's on the office of the keys, I think, or confession absolution, I can't remember. Did anybody remember? I mean, they're one and the same, so it doesn't matter. But in that section, you get Luther's definition of enthusiasm, and you get a nice historical and confessional treatment of it. Okay, let's roll forward, and we're going to skip along a bit. So, as always, um, we will thrive on, on your comments, uh, your questions, your, your dialogue with me, and um, I will skip over some things. If I skip over something you want to talk about, get my attention, and we'll, we'll talk about it. All right, so bottom of page 14, I'm getting better, pietism. 
And again, this is going to have to do with emphasis, as we mentioned. If we jump up to the top of 15, that first full paragraph, I think he's got a nice way of starting here. Resolve to keep God's law is, of course, a godly sentiment. Um, now he's referring to his time as, a, as an American evangelical. But on the pages of my journal and in my own heart, this resolve overshadowed everything else. Most especially, it overshadowed Jesus. The purpose of my life and my daily goal was to keep God's law and a bit more to make God happy by my obedience. Each day would begin with a rally to assault sin and overcome it. Each day would end with defeat, sometimes despair. I was a loser in the battle to be holy. Like a worker with an overbearing boss, I assumed that the Lord was giving out daily evaluations. And most days were bad. Most days I was sure God was frowning at me. Ah, now, how could we properly understand this? Well, I think, I think the foil to this is what the scriptures give us, that, that God is our Father, and, and so there is a sense in which he's pleased or displeased by our actions and what we do or don't do. But in a much deeper sense, he's pleased to have us as his child forever. Um, and so pleased in that ultimate sense. Just as, a, just as a father is pleased with his son or his daughter, even if the son or daughter makes terrible mistakes or messes up, what's the father's attitude? In some sense, he might be disappointed, but I can tell you as a father, more often than not, it's not so much that you're disappointed, it's that you need to be disappointed <laughs> in order to change the behavior. Right. And so we can, we can think of God the same way since we are to call upon God as our Father. That is, He loves us and He's pleased with us in the deepest possible sense through Christ Jesus. And yet, that doesn't mean our daily lives don't matter. It doesn't mean that we can go out and live like Cain and Judas and be like, well, well, God's pleased with me in Christ. Uh, that's, a, that's an error. But the opposite error would be like, okay, I've started out this morning neutral. Let's see if I can add up some credits, not make too many debits, and land on God's good side by the end of the day. How would you ever know if you did? How would you ever know if you did? And how easy to fall into despair, like Pastor Wolfmuller was falling into, or into pride. There we go, another one in the books. Another gold star in my column. How's your Christian walk? <laughs> so we've got, these, we've got these two errors on either side. The truth is in the middle. So this is a, this is a challenging one, but it's, it's, we, we want to get the emphasis right. All right, um, next paragraph on page 15. This is life on the treadmill of God's law. I thought the gospel made me a Christian, but the law kept me a Christian. Oh, oh. I have personally heard sermons just like this on the, on the local radio station that broadcasts evangelical sermons. Um, very, very I, I relate this story frequently, but this incredibly beautiful sermon was preached um, through the radio waves. Just fantastic, drawing us to account for our sins, causing us to repent and despair of ourselves, and this glorious preaching of Christ and the forgiveness of sins one on the cross, 
and, and the pastor does all this, and I, I'm so moved because you don't expect to find the gospel that pure and that wonderful. And there it is, and he says, and now for all you Christians. Oh, <laughs> that wasn't for me. <laughs> so what did, he just, what did he just do in that? The gospel isn't for Christians. The gospel is for unbelievers. Once you're a Christian, you get the law, and the law is how you stay a Christian. So I can add my own uh, testament here to Pastor Wolfmuller's experience. That theology is out there, whether you've experienced it personally or not. It's out there, and it's deadly. So obviously, how do we want to correct this statement? I thought that the gospel made me a Christian, but the law kept me a Christian. How do we want to, how do we want to correct that? start to deviate and go into into sin, mm-hmm. the law is a curb as a curb or a guide puts us, forces us back to the foot of the cross for repentance and, uh, and uh, confession and absolution and it's kind of a cycle. Yeah, maybe explicitly there we'd want to point to the mirror use of the law as oh, that okay. which directs us, uh, yeah, I mean, causes us to see ourselves as we are, despair of ourselves, and, then, and thus we need the gospel. If we know the gospel, then it drives us back to the gospel. Yeah, if we look at this, if we look just at the, at the grammar itself, I thought that the gospel made me a Christian, but the law kept me a Christian. Let's try to reverse this and see if that makes sense. I thought that the law made me a Christian, but the gospel kept me a Christian. Is that any better? No. No. <laughs> it's no better. Yeah. I think this is especially hard for young people, adolescents mm-hmm. and young adults, because they come to the cross, they give their lives to Christ, mm-hmm. and then they think, it's impossible, I can't do this. Yeah, yeah, right. But look at everybody else, they're all doing it. Yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, this is a very, very common thing. This happens to people in two different ways. If you've, if you've drifted away from your faith or maybe turned your back on the faith um, and, then, and then the Lord calls you back, you get super excited, super zealous, and everything is easy and everything is glorious and everything is great and then it isn't. <laughs> and you have to be really careful. That's a very dangerous time. Yeah, and then this can happen to us as Christians too in the, in the ups and downs and the ebb and flow of our, of our Christian experience. And maybe later in the book we'll have time to, to touch on these details when, when God withdraws himself from us uh, in order to strengthen and increase our faith. Um, but, but as we experience that, sometimes, especially if we're sort of newly rejuvenated, that first drawback can cause us to freak out a little bit and uh, despair. Okay, so just let me, let me round this out. So I thought that the gospel made me a Christian, but the law kept me a Christian. How about, how about this? I thought that the gospel made me a Christian, but the gospel also kept me as a Christian. Would that be true? Yeah. That would be true. Yeah, that's, there's the remedy. There's the remedy. So the gospel is what gets us in, and the gospel is what keeps us in. Another way, and of course... Not like the gospel is this, this magical thing. The gospel is Jesus crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. It's God's love for us in Christ Jesus. That's what gets us in, and that's what keeps us in. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. We've got to get you a microphone. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I hope I uh, 
Well, I hope I didn't. The only concern is when you look at this, if you're not realizing, is people are looking at you and they want to see some change. So if, uh, you know, I can understand where he's coming from because it's to say, hey, uh, you know, you don't have any points, mm -hmm. you know. So if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then they look at your life, they're going to say, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, I see that. I get that. Because it's, it's always easy to point to the sinful nature and say, ha-ha, you're, you're a hypocrite. But this is where that charge falls flat if you really understand yourself as a Christian. Just because I act contrary to the commandments doesn't mean I'm a hypocrite and not a true Christian. A true Christian confesses that is reality. We can't live up to the commandments. St. Paul says, the good that I want to do, I do not. The evil that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. So to be a Christian is never to keep the law perfectly, right? It is, of course, to repent when we fall short and seek forgiveness, absolution when we fall short. Yeah, so, so we want to be careful there. We want to be careful there. Um, and we want to defend ourselves against those charges. Now, the flip side of this and the and the sort of the razor thin edge that we can walk along the line is this and why it's razor thin is because if we point to the change in our life on account of being a christian uh, the danger is what do you think if, if i point to the changes that have occurred internally or externally the good works that i've done what's the danger there pride and maybe self-righteousness okay um, but what is also what is also nonetheless true it's nonetheless true that as a Christian, or as a Christian who's become reinvigorated in the faith, I'm actually experiencing new impulses of the heart. I love God and I'm paying attention to Him more than I did before. I want to go to church, I want to study the Bible, I want to pray. We don't, we don't need to shy away from that reality within us. And in fact, we can take some confidence in that, just that the Holy Spirit is at work. You know, A year ago I was not thinking about God, now I am. God gets that credit, but that is, in fact, fruit that the Holy Spirit is working in and through me. I'm not going to be all self-righteous about it, but I am going to assure myself that, no, there's a change. <laughs> there's a change. Of course, even going a step below that, the fact that you even care, you know, is, is evidence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's the gospel that gets us in, and it's the gospel that keeps us in. Um, now, Again, we're in the section on pietism, and I think why I spent so much time on this line is because I think that this really gets pietism quite right. Often, you know, one of the one of the fathers of pietism, if not the father of pietism, uh, Philip Jacob Spener, and he wrote a book. Ugh, we all had to buy it in seminary when we were just dirt poor. It broke my heart. I didn't have all of Luther, but I had to go by Spainer first for a class. But he wrote a book, uh, Pia Desideria, Pious Desires. And if I could sum up the entire book and save you $20 and a couple hours worth of time, it's this line right here. The gospel gets you in, but the law keeps you in. Yeah. Great summary of just functional pietism. Okay. Uh, Pastor Wolfmuller continues, next sentence, My decision made me a Christian, oh, revivalism, as he's defined it, see, and my resolution kept me there, pietism. Revivalism and pietism, you can see how those two things go hand in hand. 
the law had the central place in my conscience. Yeah. I, you know, much could be said there on conscience and the fact that the law has no business there, but I suspect we'll touch on that later in this text, so maybe, maybe we don't need to take that digression right now. Next paragraph. The only way to find certainty with the law is through obedience. When Moses takes the place of Jesus, then obedience takes the place of forgiveness. Earnest determination takes the place of hope. And despair takes the place of comfort. Really, the law and its commands replace the gospel and its promises. This is pietism. Um, another way, if you really analyze this, uh, again, um, just, just very quickly, okay, determination instead of hope, despair instead of comfort, the law instead of the gospel, deeds instead of creeds, or works instead of faith. You can see in the language of deeds, not creeds, a kind of dismissing of faith in Christ, a kind of dismissing in those, you know, these are doctrines. Justification, the forgiveness of sins, Christ on the cross, Christ's resurrection. These are doctrines. The doctrines are secondary to the deeds, living out, working out your faith, living before God. It, sometimes in the crassest form, this theology is like, Thank you very much for redeeming me, Jesus. Now get out of the way. That's me and God, and I've got business to take care of here. Uh, you really get that sense that Jesus has been cast off in a corner, or if you're thinking about it in terms of a theological system, Jesus is necessary, but just a necessary cog <laughs> in a greater machine that really is me and God. Yeah, when you've got that going on, you don't have biblical Christianity anymore. Remember in John chapter 14, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough. What does Jesus say? Philip, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Now think about this. What does Philip actually say? Show us the Father and it is enough. Jesus? We thank you. You're awesome. You're super important. We love you. Out of the way, we want to deal with the big guy. Yeah. And Jesus says, "Are you no? no. <laughs> you got it wrong. If if whatever God you have apart from me isn't the true God, only in me and through me will you see the one true God." Now this gets to the heart of why Lutherans are so Christ-centered and cross-focused, to borrow a slogan, because. Because it is precisely in Jesus and Him crucified that we behold the face and attitude and heart of the Father. As soon as we take Jesus and say, okay, give me God without all that stuff, we've lost God. Yeah. And that, of course, comes from Jesus Himself. Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And you know, Paul puts it in his very typical academic way. Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. That is, the, he's the, the invisible God who we cannot grasp, can only be grasped 
and Jesus. Okay, so uh, let's march along here. I don't know what's going on. Again, you'll have to pardon me. The formatting has me, uh, I don't know if this bracketed thing is the end of the paragraph, its own paragraph, or I guess it can't be part of the next. Pietism teaches that the Christian life is chiefly marked by a growth in good works. Okay, so chiefly is, is the issue of emphasis. Yeah, and you know, an over an overfixation on growth too can be an issue. I mean, obviously we want to grow, we want to be maturing in the faith. Um, the scriptures teach this, the Lutheran confessions teach this. Um, but when that becomes the central focus rather than Jesus, then we've lost something. All right, unfortunately, who is to blame for pietism? <laughs> pietism began in the German Lutheran Church. Ah, ah, every church body has their, has their gift to give to the world. <laughs> and this was ours, unfortunately. So pietism comes out as a result of rationalism and sort of this, what was sort of called dead orthodoxy and this idea of like getting your doctrines right is all that matters. And sort of like, you might have seen this from time to time, it's like, well, you've got that right and that right and that right, but you don't have this little tiny technicality over here right, you're doomed, you know. And so pietism goes, hey, away with all that. It's your, it's your prayer life, it's your almsgiving, it's your fasting, it's your singing, it's your in-home devotions, it's all of this stuff, it's all your works that matter. And, and what do we see here once more? This is going to be a theme throughout this text. The opposite of an error isn't the truth, it's just the opposite error. So the opposite of the error of rationalism and dead orthodoxy is pietism and deeds not creeds. The truth is in the middle, that doctrine is life, and those two things are wed together. Okay. If we drop down to the, uh, to the very um, next paragraph, the bottom paragraph on page 15, pietism is a theological move toward the centrality of works in the Christian of life. Pietism understands that the order of salvation, sorrow over sin, faith in God's promise, and the spiritual fruit of repentance occurs chronologically in a person's life. This means that after I've repented and accepted Jesus, then it's time to get after the serious business of keeping the law and living a holy life. Okay, notice what he says here, because I think this is very insightful. This is a, this is a, a distortion of Christianity into a strict chronology. First you repent. Then you're forgiven. Then you get busy. Okay. Um, what does is, what is biblical Christianity look like? You repent and you're forgiven and then you get busy and then you repent again and then you're forgiven again and then you forget to get busy and you repent and then you're forgiven again. There's no strict chronology. You can't say, okay, I checked off A, repent. I checked off B, get forgiven, now I'm on C, get better. No, that's a complete distortion of the Christian faith. Uh, of course, Luther very famously begins his 95 theses that set off the Reformation. The very first of those theses, very germane to this point, 
When our Lord Jesus Christ said to repent, he willed that the entire life of the Christian would be one of repentance. How beautiful and how true. How perfectly in keeping with St. Paul, who still calls himself, even after he's the apostle of all apostles, still calls himself what? The chief of all sinners. Yeah. So our whole lives are lives of repentance. Our whole lives are lives of forgiveness. Our whole lives are lives of striving against the sinful flesh that is within us and trying to grow and mature in, in Christ. All right. Yes, if you take this to its logical extreme, on page 16, I won't read the whole paragraph, but if you take this, this theology to its logical extreme, you end up with the holiness body, um, bodies, Nazarenes and Methodists, those who think you can actually attain holiness in this life, sinlessness in this life. And in fact, if you don't, you're not a true Christian. And that's strict, the strict holiness. So um, you can see where some of those, those folks land and why they land there. And then in the next paragraph, just the front line, he, he's right on the, the point of emphasis. With pietism, the gospel moves from the center to the side. Yeah. And then here's really, really crass kind of pietistical statement. Modern. Jesus died for you. What will you do for him? Oh, oh. Now, of course, as, uh, as Pastor Wolfmuller diagnoses this, I mean, this is terrible because... What we have here is what we call a confusion between the law and the gospel. Okay, um, Jesus died for you. In a sense, that phrase can be ambiguous. Because what if I said, like, Jesus died for you? <laughs> you know, like, you are so terrible. He died for you. Okay, well, there's like a condemnation sense, right? Or if you look at the cross and you say, that's what I deserve. That's the true nature of my sin and justice. It's a horrifying, condemning kind of thing. Okay, That's fine. That's great. The flip side is, Jesus died for you, expressed verbally that way, is gospel. And seeing on the cross, yes, it's horrible and terrible, but my Lord Jesus loves me so much that he's there in my place bearing it for me, saving me from eternal death, saving me from my sins. It's gospel. Okay? So you got these two sides of, of this phrase, Jesus died for you. But generally speaking, in the church, Jesus died for you is taken as gospel. Okay? Now, Jesus died for you, what will you do for him? Does that not diminish the gospel and turn the gospel simply into the premise of the law? Jesus has done X, now you must do Y, quid pro quo. And so when the law and the gospel are mingled in this way and confused in this way, all that remains is the law. Right? Sort of like, you know, if you, take, um, if you take water and you mix in just a little bit of arsenic, are you going to drink it? <laughs> no, the whole water is tainted and ruined by that little bit of arsenic. That little conditional, that little confusion of law and gospel ruins the gospel. So Jesus died for you, what will you do for him? Um, and of course, you have, if you've spent any time in evangelical land, you've uh, gotten sermons just like that. All right, um, so just to get the sense of, of where he's going, um, let's drop down to the bottom three lines and look at these statements, the bottom three lines on page 16. 
And this uh, resonates with the story I told just a moment ago about the sermon I heard in the car. Grace is for the unbeliever. The law is for the Christian. Hmm. With pietism, what are you doing for God replaces the preaching of what God has done for us in Christ. Yeah, now, um, just, as we, just as we say with every error, there's an opposite error. And it isn't the truth, it's just the opposite error. Um, take those two statements, grace is for the unbeliever, the law is for the Christian. Now, we re- we're recognizing that as pietism, we're recognizing that as wrong. Now, think about it this way. Law is for the unbeliever, grace is for the Christian. Yes. You like that. I do. You like that. There is a right way to understand that, and I bet that that's how you're understanding it. Of course. The law is, the, yeah, of course. The law is for the unrighteous, okay? and the gospel, of course, is what nourishes and sustains the Christian. There's a right way, but you kind of have to work hard to get there. You really do. Because, because we're going to say that the law is also for the Christian, that is for the old man in us to continue to lead us into repentance. So, I think even this statement, if we flip it and say the law is for the unbeliever and the gospel is for the Christian, we are just going to run into the opposite error. We're going to run into this kind of, um, hey, I'm a Christian. Don't tell me how I should behave. The law is for the unbeliever. I'm free in Christ. And free in Christ does not mean free from sin. It means free to sin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which, as we all know, Jesus uh, you know, said to the adulterous woman, after he saved her, he said, you know, go and sin all you want. No! He said, go and sin no more. Right. So um, there's the law given to a Christian. Okay, so what I'm trying to point out here is, again, using very uh, broad strokes here with the brush, Grace is for the unbeliever, the law is for the Christian. That's, that's pietism. But if you flip that, you just get anti-pietism. You just get this opposite error, which you know, we've, we've experienced our share of that in Lutheranism, sometimes called radical Lutheranism. You sometimes see this embodied in the ELCA theology, um, where they say uh, you know, the gospel becomes the very premise for um, homosexuality and... Uh, divorce and abortion and all kinds of abominations because the logic works this way. Hey, we're Christians. The gospel only is for us. No law. Don't law me, bro. And so you get this, you get this anti-pietistic sect happening within Lutheranism and American Lutheranism in particular that jives with the lawlessness of our culture. So again, what are we saying? We're saying that the opposite of an error is just the opposite error. We want to make our theology based biblically, not just as a reactionary theology against what's going on. Yes, um, one second. We've got a, I see a number of hands, and we've got to uh, get a microphone to all of you. Um, I agree with you, obviously. But as a lifelong Lutheran, I've seen those two things kind of commingled. My mm-hmm. salvation and the acknowledgement that I'm a sinner and that it occurs daily, no matter what I do, it seems that it yeah. just keeps coming up. But the grace covers me as I ask repentance. And just, but as a Lutheran, I understand this perfectly. It makes perfect sense mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. What would 
the evangelicals say, because we have them, as you know, and if I said, well, Jesus, do you understand salvation, the gospel? Do you? Yes, I love Jesus, and that's all I need. Mm -hmm. So they would say they put Jesus at the center of their faith. Now, I know that there's lots of errors there. I mean, I can see it. Well, I think... Because pietism is rampant. Yeah, I think one of the shifts is... Um, because I think many American Christians, I don't want to pick on any one denomination in specific here, but I think many American Christians in all denominations say, well, we have Jesus at the center. And they do, kind of, but it's not Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. It's Jesus as life coach, co-pilot, the guy who helps me fulfill the law, right? right. So, so then I think that that's one of the major confusions. Like, hey, we've got Jesus all over the place. We've got Jesus in spades. But it's always Jesus kind of with his clipboard being like, hey, how are you doing today? You know, not, not Jesus um, in the way of law and gospel, in the way of showing us our sins so that we repent and then graciously forgiving us so that we go and sin no more, you know, and so there, there, there's, that, there's that pattern, that ebb and flow, you know, you can conceive of it as a cycle if you like, or you can conceive of it as a sort of um, two steps forward, one step back, <laughs> ideally, although sometimes in truth it's two, one step forward, two steps backwards, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Christian life is not, a, is not really a linear thing if we're focused on it's much more analogous to uh, climbing a mountain trail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and switchbacks. And yeah, I'm going forward. <laughs> Just <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I'm going to get there, but not in a way that's linear where it's like, oh, okay, today's Thursday. I'm at least five points ahead of where I was on Monday. You know, it's... That's just very rarely the Christian life. So what is, what, is the, you know, what is the fact of the matter here? The fact of the matter is we as Christians need law and gospel. We need law and gospel. Now the law is going to belong to our flesh. We're going to make a distinction here. We're going to say, we're going to say that the, the human being is, is part old Adam. The old Adam still clings to us and is, and is part new man. And that new man is created in us in Christ Jesus through the waters of holy baptism. And so that new man is the one who has all the good godly impulses in us. We want to love God. We do love God. We want to serve him more. The, old, the, the new man in us is like, is like this question. Do you wish right now you could snap your fingers and be through with all sin forever? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah that's, the, that's the new man. And that's the predominance of the new man. I mean, no Christian goes... No, I wish I could sin forever and never do another good thing. Um, that's, that's clearly the old. In fact, I mean, rarely probably, but, but sometimes we find our heart and our mind wandering towards those hateful, despising thoughts towards God. And it's, then it's like you catch yourself and you're like, what on earth was that madness? You know, well, that's the old Adam within us. Okay, so the law, properly speaking, belongs to only to the old Adam within us, that is to condemn it, to say, hey, here's, here's what good is and you're not it, and you need to stop being the way you are, okay, and put that, put that old Adam to death. Uh, and then the gospel is just for the new man and for the conscience, okay, rather than the flesh. What happens if you put the law in the conscience or the new man, the way we're talking about it? Well, you end up with pietism. 
you end up with, I've got to, I've got to do good works. I've got to have my ministry in order to have a good conscience with God. So if you put the law in the conscience or the law in the new man, um, in, this, in this way we're speaking, then you end up with pietism. What happens, let's reverse it. What happens if you put the gospel in the flesh, the gospel in the old man? That's, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? And instead of Paul saying, by no means, we say yes, because Christ has already forgiven all your sins from before you are even born to the last sin you'll ever commit, so don't even worry about it. That's when we put the, when we put the gospel into the flesh. Now we have anti-pietism, which is just the opposite error, you see. So we want to be very careful to keep the gospel in the new man and the conscience and the law in the old man and the flesh. And this way we don't fall into either of these two errors. Yes, please. Would it be wrong thinking to use law and gospel? Let's see. It's, you have those moments where you think you get it and then it goes away. The, the law shows us why we need a Savior. Mm-hmm. And then the gospel shows us the perfect Savior and the perfection of Christ. But you need to use law and gospel in both places because Christ shows us how to be perfect. We'll never be perfect, but we still need to emulate Mm -hmm. him as much as we possibly can and use him as the paradigm for how to walk through the world Mm -hmm. without Mm -hmm. being of the world. Yeah. Anyway, I mean... Right. Is that right thinking, right. or I mean, yeah. it comes and goes, but well, but it shows ab- us why we need him, it's and then absolutely right, yeah. And and what we're doing right here is, you know, in this exercise, we're really using a very narrow definition of law and gospel. We're using the definition of law primarily in what we call the second use of the law as accusation, condemnation, and we're using the gospel in the narrow sense of the forgiveness of sins. And so you're not going to forgive the old Adam because he takes forgiveness as permission. Yeah. And you're not going to condemn the new man for in Christ there is no condemnation. So we're using it in this paradigm I've been talking, we're using it very narrowly. In truth, it's a bit more complex. In truth, it's a bit more complex because the law has these three different ways it functions with us, where it curbs us and keeps us from sinning. You know, if you could, if you could instantly become a, a millionaire and all you had to do was just click a button and you knew it was wrong but no one was ever going to find out you know would you not be tempted yeah and but the but the law comes and says hey somebody's going to find out you're going to get nailed for this and that's why you can't do it you know and so you don't is that any great pious christian impulse no it's just fear of getting in trouble (laughs) so that's the way the law functions to curb us it doesn't change the heart it just curbs the behavior Um, That's really how the civil laws, the laws of our nation work. You know, there's times where I want to drive down the freeway as fast as I possibly can, but I don't. Why? Because there could be a police officer behind me and a fat fine and um, increased insurance rates and all the rest, so I'm not going to. Is that some great holy impulse within me? No. (laughs) It's just a fear of, of the penalty of the law, and so that's what we mean by a curb. By a mirror, that's the way we've been using it. This is the primary use of the law. It's why God gives the law in Sinai, and this is Paul's theology in Galatians and Romans. Um, but he gives, us, he gives us the law primarily so that we can see that we're, we're lost without a Savior. 
This is who you really are. And then um, the third use of the law is, is the, really the Christian use. So after you realize I'm a sinner and I'm lost and I can never achieve this holiness, Christ comes and says, I've achieved it all and done it all for you. I've blotted out your iniquities. I've lived the perfect life and credited my righteousness to you. That law still remains as God's will, doesn't it? Yeah. And so now we, we as Christians want to say, okay, well, what does Christian freedom look like? It looks like that. It looks like freedom from sin. And that's what keeps us on, that's, that's what keeps you know, our, our eyes on that as a goal. And then when we fall short of the goal, we're back to the second use, and we're back to forgiveness, and then we're back to the law not condemning us, and so we're back to looking at it in the third use way. You know. um, now, in truth, in real life, all of these things are kind of swirling around constantly, but, but this is, if we sort of diagnose it and break it down, this is the way the law and the gospel are functioning on us as, as Christians. It's the way that God is using law and gospel to shape and form us into the image of Christ. Okay, yes, please. This is not going to be sequential, so bear with me. Right. First of all, the expression, who will help me escape this wretched man that I am? Mm -hmm. As I age, that is... And as what's going on in America, to defund the police means we would like to have no, no one hovering over us going down the freeway mm -hmm. or, or whatever. I, you know, the whole woke society, which is troublesome to me. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have the issue of raising the children to see as Christian children and parents, grandparents, mm -hmm. How to how to speak to what's what's being called for from the I'll say it again the woke society it's just a, a dilemma that we've got ourselves in and and the and to resolve first of all for it to be resolved personally for me because I I am I the the more I study with you the more I am ready to go to heaven and be done with earth. <laughs> <laughs> you too. Yes, I agree. Well, let me speak to, let me speak to your point. Um, just from this theological context and angle in which we're talking, I mean, you could analyze wokeism from any number of angles, but from this particular angle, the central feature of wokeism is create your own reality, right? If you feel like you're a girl, and even though you're biologically a boy, you know, right? So you're... It's you at the center, and freedom is defined as I will be and do whatever I want. Now, that's very interesting, because that fits with the classical definition of original sin. Because original sin is um, the incurvatus in se, the self curved in on itself. Right? So then, if that's, and, and that's what we see all around us, Right? And that, dove, I mean, that, go, that coincides perfectly with lawlessness, self-centeredness and lawlessness. I am a law unto myself. I will decide what is right and wrong. I will decide what reality is and isn't. Okay? All of this, of course, goes all the way back to you will be like God. Aha, I'm my own God. I create myself and all things as I want to see them. Okay, so what's the answer to that? Well, the answer to that is that's theologically speaking not freedom profoundest slavery, slavery to oneself. I mean, 
how infinitesimally small, what a, <laughs> to quote a Marvel movie, what a puny God <laughs> you are. Um, you know, and, and so what is it then to be set free? It's precisely to be set free from yourself and to start following one who is greater than you and leads to a greater potentiality, namely Jesus Christ and through him God. And thus to do not my will, but his will, thy will be done, is then the essence of this paradigm. So true freedom, and this is what's so strange and paradoxical to us, and the old man just rejects this outright because the old man says freedom is I do whatever I want. In truth, that's slavery. True freedom seems to the old man like bondage, doesn't it? God says, you do everything I want you to do. The old Adam reason just says, hey, that's bondage. But in fact, that is purest of all freedom, greatest of all openings. The whole world opens up. It's as big as God because we're following God. Whereas if you're following only your own self and your own will, it collapses smaller and smaller and smaller. So we can, we can then define from this angle true freedom versus true slavery, selfishness versus selflessness to which we're being called in Christ Jesus. And of course, look at Christ crucified, the epitome of selflessness, not only for sinners who hate and despise him, but for God who is forsaking him on account of our sins. He is entirely and perfectly selfless. And that's our goal because that's pure freedom. All right, so um, thank you for that comment. Um, that's how we'd view that question from this, this theological angle. All right, maybe that's enough on pietism, at least for today. I think we'll, I think we'll go back to it. So let's hit mysticism. I bet, we can, I bet we can do well at this. All right, mysticism, and he calls it touching God. This is uh, page 17. Um, yeah, I, I've heard this a few times. Uh, you're, you have a great church pastor, but I just didn't feel the Holy Spirit there. All right, that's, so that's mysticism, this idea that we're going to feel the Holy Spirit or that our feelings are going to be the barometer of whether or not the Holy Spirit's there. Uh, okay, so where would your number one stumbling block with this theology be if you're just going to look at the Bible? The Psalms. The Psalms. Because the psalmists and many, many Psalms, in fact, more than you think, they're not feeling it. <laughs> They're not feeling the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's the whole point of the psalm. I'm not feeling you, God. Where are you? You've promised X, Y, and Z, and all I see is the opposite of X, Y, and Z. Okay, so is that Holy Spirit inspired? Yes. Is, that, is the Holy Spirit working in and through those words? Absolutely. He's everywhere. And the feelings are not there. Okay. So that might be ground zero in sort of... Uh, overturning this idea of mysticism that's woven itself so deeply into American Christianity. Um, this idea that we're going to feel things all the time. And that's going to be our barometer for truth. Now, very telling, very telling. Um, this, this next paragraph on page 17. A few years ago, this is Pastor Wolfmuller speaking, I interviewed Chris Tomlin, a prominent voice in the contemporary worship music world. He said the role of the worship leader is to bring people into the presence of God. Yeah. How do you know when you've arrived in the presence of God, I asked. You just know it. This is about as accurate and precise as you can get. You just know it. 
some secret part of your insides lets you know when you are close to God. This is mysticism. Now, another major problem with this is, think about this more universally in terms of other religions. It's precisely the same thing. Other religions, you have these ecstatic, mystical experiences where you're sure you're close to God. Are you? Nope. Nope. So, that's not a that is not a, 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 a Christian impulse. That's just simply a, a human impulse, and it pervades every religion. So we need to analyze it more. This, you just know it. Any, any person of any religion could say this. All right, so mysticism teaches that we have a direct, unmediated access to God. Now, I think that that's true in its crassest form. But I think more subtly, and what we just sort of swept over, is what did, what did Tomlin say? He didn't say direct contact with God. He said the role of the worship leader is to bring people into the presence of God. And what, of course, he means is the music. Okay. So, so in, in, a, in, a very, in a very broad sense, we might say, okay, mysticism is... God in my heart, God making me feel certain ways, right? This sort of ecstatic, mystical, religious experience, okay? Or feeling the Holy Spirit, as it sometimes is called. But what Tomlin says is very interesting. He says it's the worship leader or the music that is intending to do this to you. Now, this is one of the things I've puzzled over. As I visited um, different American Christian churches, what I notice is the hands go up in the air and people start swaying and really feeling the Holy Spirit and the waterworks are flowing sometimes and um, people, are, people are completely in the Spirit. Not when the pastor was talking about Jesus and forgiveness, quite often for the one or two minutes that he does in his 45-minute message, but not then, but when. Coincidentally, when the drums are thumping the heaviest and the music is swelling to crescendo. So is it Jesus? Is it the word of Jesus? Is it the teachings of Scripture? Or is it this very human, very almost animalistic impulse that the drums are beating and the music is swelling? And, and for some of us, I'll make an embarrassing confession. If you're live at a University of Colorado football game <laughs> and the fight song is just played... Yeah, yeah, you've got a tear coming down your eye because you know you're going to beat the Huskers. And, and the whole stadium is just roaring and the kickoff's going up and everybody is going, ah, you know. Okay, I, that's every bit as ecstatic as what's going on in the worship hall. So we need to take an honest look at that and say, why if that is the Holy Spirit, then why isn't it happening with Jesus and the words and things of Jesus? Why is it happening when the drums are pounding and the music's swelling? Okay. Um, another thing, another way in which we can analyze this. There is, in fact, a need to be connected with God. But what connects us with God? And I've already hinted at it here. In the scriptures, our Lord Jesus himself 
gives us the Word and the sacraments, these are the places where God wants to connect with us. Um, maybe, maybe especially the reading of the Scriptures and the preaching of the Scriptures as one thing, and the Lord's Supper. These are the things that Christ himself has instituted and said, here's where you'll find me. Here's where you'll experience me. Now, isn't it interesting to note that precisely where those have been swept away or diminished, what supplanted it is music, worship leader, smoke and lights. See, what I think has happened actually in American Christianity in this form of mysticism is we've rejected the ways that Jesus has, has, has said he's going to connect with us and we've replaced them with worship experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, now, um, so now we've got, now we've got a, a wide definition of mysticism, which is just sort of God immediately speaking into my heart and me feeling these emotions. And now we've got a more specific, narrow, and precise definition. The, the, the Word, and maybe particularly the sacraments of Jesus, moved out of the way and replaced by worship experience. And, and frequently, spectacle. I mean, from the absurd, some churches you've seen these on YouTube, driving motorcycles in, or the pastor parachuting in, spectacle, whatever is meant to rally you up and get you excited, right? Uh, help me with this. I don't know how to um, articulate this or what you think. Uh, it seems like there's a mixture of this in there. <clears throat> uh, when we are in chorus, in concert, um, those of you who know about the Master Chorale in Concordia. Um, and we, we join sometimes with all the Concordia choirs, and we're singing something really strong. Uh, the Messiah, for example, of course, many times, and others, and Bach, and so on. Uh, some of the passages that we sing, um, <clears throat> people have told me I'm like Barry City next to me. And he walked in to the, the chorus and he was just yeah. startled and moved and so on. And you see that in the audience. But when we're singing, some of this is, I guess there's some, a mystic element. Uh, you have a feeling. Oh, uh, that's uh, a are you point. just, uh, uh, you forget you're even, actually, you totally forget, uh, you never see the audience. Mm -hmm. You forget they're even there. Mm -hmm. You're, you're singing to the Lord and you just feel. Yes. You feel something. I don't know how to describe it. It may be a little bit like communion when we're mm -hmm. taking the, mm -hmm. the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can only speak for myself, not, but, but maybe for the majority of singers. Um, how do I <laughs> relate yeah. the, the, this this? this, I guess, somewhat mystical feeling, yeah. and feeling the Holy Spirit, as you were, sure. without getting into, sure. uh, oh, a great point. In, into the negatives that you were talking yeah, about. It's a great point. But at the same time, <laughs> you know right. that the music you are singing, mm -hmm. uh, that you practice, one passage that you hear for two minutes, we practice for 20 hours, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> you think we just spit it out there no um. sure, sure well if I could if I could interrupt and yeah. speak to your and, and I apologize for that but if I could just speak to your point quickly so what we want to do is, is we want to um, we want to see what the opposite of mysticism is that we've defined here 
okay? And, and let's see if it's the truth or the opposite error, okay? So, so here's mysticism as we've defined it here. Music in and of itself, it doesn't really matter what the words are. Frequently the words are just sort of repetitious. Uh, I'm not talking about your singing. Oh. <laughs> Handel's Messiah, I don't know how you could say that. It's just scripture. Um, exactly, okay, we're so, singing scripture. Yeah, so this is our exercise. This is our, this is our thought exercise, okay? Um, so, so we've got all of this emotional-driven, drum-driven, light-show-driven stuff going on. Okay, so what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that would be to say emotions are bad. God will, God will never touch you, uh, it, it touch your heart in such a way um, that you would ever be ecstatic or excited or weep or clap or rejoice. In fact, the, the, absolute, the absolute perfect posture for any Christian is to sit like this and show no emotion. Okay, so, there, so that's the opposite. Now, is that, is that true? Is that biblical? Absolutely not. Okay, so now we've defined the opposite error, and we know we don't want to go over that far. How do we know that biblically? Let's define it biblically then. What do we see in the Psalms? Clap your hands, shout for joy. Yeah, so there is plenty of room for exuberance, plenty of room for emotion, plenty of room to be, to be caught up in our thoughts um, and, and the swelling of the, uh, of the music where God's word is central, like it is in the Psalms, like it is in Messiah, like it is in Bach, where they've literally taken the scriptures and made them the heart and the center. So now what we've done is we've defined the middle, haven't we? The biblical middle. We're not going to go out here into emotion is how I connect with God, solely or strictly, nor are we going to go off and say emotion is bad. We're going to say, let's connect with God on the basis of his word and sacraments. And I bet from time to time, our prayers, our praise, our singing, our thanksgiving are going to begin to emulate that which we find in heaven. Going to be filled with passion and joy and uh, all all of those good fruits of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, the emotion is there. Uh, When uh, Dr. Bush raises the baton, all of a sudden the audience disappears and we're in the word in song. And it's like, it's an, it's, it's, the emotion builds, and you can see us. We're assuming we're we're not just singing like this. We're, we're, we're totally into the music and the song and the word. It's all intertwined. There are, there are times in our sanctuary where it's, it's the very same energy, the very same ethos, and people are um, singing to the top of their lungs and their tears and there's joy. And, and so, so, yeah, so what we're doing is we're looking at the, we're finding the biblical center. We're going to go away from the, the error that we're, we're defining as mysticism. We're going to go away from an anti-mysticism, which would be just, just not biblical, but the opposite error, which would be a kind of stoicism or quietism. And truth be told, you can find some of this in the Lutheran church. It's just they've mistaken, they, they've become ant, so anti-mystic that they've just become Stoics, yeah, bullfrogs sitting there in the pew, and they, you know, they don't want to sing a song lest they might accidentally feel an emotion. Yeah, so that's just simply the opposite air. So the truth is right in the middle. Um, I thank you for bringing that up because that gives us opportunity to do uh, to do that justice. Let's pick up next week here in the middle. We'll close out uh, mysticism. And then we'll go into enthusiasm and we'll have laid the foundation of this text and um, we'll see if we can't move a little faster. The Lord be with you. And also with you.
Sorry, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. The following week, yeah, take a week off. We'll see you in two weeks.